Hi, everyone. Welcome to I Am CRN Friends. My name is Nicole, and I am your host today. This podcast is hosted by me, as well as the International Association of Media and Communication Research. IAMCR is a global professional association of media and communication researchers. And that is how I met Sion Yin, who is an assistant professor in the School of Communication at Simon Fraser University. Siwon's research interests include cultural studies, feminism, and the political economy of communication. Uh, she has recent publications and journals like New Media and Society. I read your most recent one. It was fantastic. Triple C, Communication, Capitalism and Critique, and Cultural Studies. Welcome. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Thanks, Nicole, for having me there. Well, thank you so much for coming. It's lovely to talk to you. My first question when I read your paper that you submitted to the IAMCR conference was, how did you become interested in the platform economy? So uh, my primary interests are focused on labor and well-being workers. On one hand, we have uh, witnessed in the past four decades of neoliberal reforms, this increasing precariousness and insecurity that working populations face across global North and South. The informalization of employment, in developed countries in North America, Europe, Japan, South Korea, etc., and the sweatshop working conditions of a huge number of disenfranchised workers in newly industrializing countries like China and India. On the other hand, we have been exposed to this persistent celebratory views of technologists that technological development is believed to have this emancipatory power for human labor throughout the modern and the so-called contemporary postmodern world. This is also true with platform technologies, where mainstream views, especially from business sectors and media, were promoting those fancy ideas such as sharing economy and flexibility to celebrate the possibilities brought by the new technology. Responding to this overtly optimistic views of platforms and platform technologies, there has been, however, in the past decade, numerous critical scholarship all over the world revealing how the intersection of platform technologies and gig economy has restructured labor relations and working conditions. For instance, uh, Uber drivers and delivery workers who lack access to formal employment, job benefits, and securities. So in this particular project, I want to engage this uh, critical conversations and move further to expand our understanding of platform gig economy and labor conditions in our present conjuncture. Yes, I think a lot of us are familiar with things like the Uberization of the marketplace. Your paper is called Situating Platform Gig Economy in the Formal Subsumption of Reproductive Labor, Transnational Migration, Domestic Workers, and the Continuum of Exploitation and Precarity. How are you linking into these ideas of the gig economy and exploitation in this paper? What are some of the main arguments you're making? Sure. So in this paper, I'm discussing platform gig economy from the perspective of reproductive labor and migrant domestic workers, which is an underexplored area from an intersectional lens of Marxism and feminism. So specifically, I want to draw our attention to the enduring structural and institutional forces that make migrant women as this reserve army of labor for commodified domestic work. The very exploitation of women's unpaid and low paid reproductive work has persisted throughout various stages of capitalist development. In the contemporary neoliberal global economy, 
migrant mass workers underpaid reproductive labor becomes an essential site for primitive cap capital accumulation and the production of the labor force. So in this very article, building upon analysis of the historical and contemporary circumstances of transnational migrant mass workers in Canada, I want to argue that digital platforms are a technology-enabled capital-driven force in the larger commodification and exploitation process of workers' labor. And such processes are underpinned by entangled structural institutional forces of the uneven capitalist development, racism, patriarchy, and the state's discriminatory immigration and labor policies. So in this very article, I suggest that our understanding of the seeming prevalence of platform work should be situated in this continuous formal subsumption of reproductive labor and the class immobility of migrant domestic workers. It strikes me that your work is kind of, uh, and I have this book here in front of me, Platform Capitalism by right. Nick Snurick, which a lot of people have read at this point, but this this idea of subsumption is, is building into it in a way that layers in these systemic issues that we don't often talk about. So I'm wondering how you're, how you're articulating this form of platform work within a continuum of labor exploitation, if you can elaborate on that. Sure, that's a great question. So scholars often attribute the rise of the gig economy to the neoliberal transitions in the past four decades, along with the shrinking welfare state, declining power of the trade and labor unions, and reconstitution of the international global labor market. But this view ignores the unpaid or low-paid reproductive labor, which has been systematically excluded from formal employment throughout the history of capitalist development and other economies. The labor market and domestic work of domestic work has been historically underregulated, where workers are extremely underpaid and deprived of the benefits of formal employment. So, from a totality perspective, interrogating capitalism, the gig economy, along with the rising power of the digital platforms, these platform technologies, not only I argue that not only restructures labor relations in a way that demolishes formal employment, but also preserves a continuum of labor exploitation of the degraded labor of underprivileged and marginalized people, people including transnational domestic workers. So I argue that the very understanding of platform work should thus be situated along this in this continuum of labor exploitation. I thought your conceptual framework here was very interesting. You're pulling from Marx's concept of formal and real subsumption in tandem with Joyce's reconstruction of platform work as a large-scale reemergence of formal subsumption as big capital reorganizing it reorganizes these existing labor processes under its own sort of thumb, its own domination. Uh, can you A, tell us why these theoretical choices as the underpinning of your work and how you apply these concepts to the concepts of exploitation and formal subsumption in reproductive labor? Sure. So let me explain this two concepts a little bit first. Marx has distinguished two forms of, uh, by which labor is subsumed under capitalism, formal and real subsumption. Formal subsumption corresponds to the stage of capitalist primitive accumulation when peasants were expelled from rural land to migrant cities as wage workers in factories. And real subsumption is when the capitalist mode of production becomes dominant with the incorporation of machines and technologies. While machines and technologies 
technological developments by changing the mode of production enable the real subsumption of manufacturing workers' labor under capital. I argue that reproductive labor has primarily and consi consistently relied on human labor, which cannot be simply replaced by machinery. Family becomes a production site when material product, product commodity in the form of human labor and immaterial product commodity of care and emotions are produced, both by women's unpaid reproductive labor and by domestic workers' low-paid labor. So in this sense, formal subsumption of workers' labor in our contemporary era is not only evident in offshoring manufacturing manufacturing factories in the global south, um, those newly industrializing countries, but pervasive in the commodification and degradation of domestic workers' labor across the global north and the south. Just as the formal subsumption of peasants' labor to factories was very much sanctioned by bloody legislation in the early industrial age and the contemporary neoliberal um, states, the subsumption process of migrant workers' reproductive labor also entails a series of structural and institutional forces in the contemporary era, including the international division of labor, state disciplinary power through immigration and labor policies, and the very segregated domestic labor market, feudal residue of this master-servant relationship between uh, domestic work as employees and their employers, and this enduring patriarchal system that very much degrades domestic work. I wonder if you can just um, anchor into this idea with class immobility in Canada a little bit. How does this fit into our scope within your, like this scope, this geographical scope? Sure. So, um, I, in this very paper, I want to approach uh, Canada as a case, uh, exemplary case to talk about how we can understand this, uh, on one hand, the transnational formation of, of the elites group, uh, along with the, the neoliberal reforms in the past decades, and also this fragmented global working class on the other hand, right, we see um, this increasingly different enfranchisement of uh, workers, not only in, in the uh, developing countries, as we, we see those sweatshop working conditions, uh, yes. large number of urban migrant workers, but also an increasing number of gig workers, right, um, in, in those developed economies. And in, in the very case of domestic workers in Canada, uh, as I've elaborated in the article, we see that how they are constantly trapped in this vicious circle of yes. having very, very limited access to achieve social mobility, which they did desire um, before they make the decisions to migrate and work in Canada. Yes, uh, it's let's... also, sorry, sorry, it's not also <laughs> exclusive uh, case or phenomenon in Canada. It's actually a very um, common prevalent phenomenon we can widely see in many other contexts. Yeah, absolutely. It's a ubiquitous problem that you can actually translate to other regions, which is something I found really interesting in your work. But let's talk about your specific research design, as well as your decision to focus on Filipino domestic workers in Canada. Sure. So um, I had for, for research, I have a long held interest in issues of domestic work and the well-being of domestic workers in historical, national and global contexts. So in this very um, particular study, I want to explore the well-being of 
Filipino domestic workers in contemporary Canada. Let me uh, give a bit historical background first. Mm -hmm. So throughout the 20th century uh, to the present time, migrant domestic labor in Canada has been profoundly configured by gender, class, and racial politics. For instance, in the first decades of early 20th century, the main labor force of paid domestic work was young working class immigrant women from Britain, mainly from Britain. And from the 50s to the 70s, the Canadian government mainly recruited Western Indian women from Caribbean countries to serve as domestic workers in white middle-class Canadian families. And from the 70s onward, Filipino migrant worker, uh, migrant women have become the main labor force for domestic service. While compared with prior British immigrant women workers, Caribbean and Filipino women face rather circumscribed conditions set by the discriminatory immigration policy, which restricts these women from obtaining access to permanent residency in the country. And in the 1980s, uh, in order to um, bring more, attract more workers, the Canadian government implemented a program called Living Caregiver Program. LCP to attract foreign domestic workers, most of whom are still Filipino women working in major cities such as Vancouver and Toronto. Mm -hmm. So this very program allows migrant women in the first time to apply for immigrant status once they have served as living domestic workers for two years. However, in the past three decades since the LCP was launched, many studies have revealed that instead of empowering migrant domestic workers with access to immigration, the program actually exacerbates this workers' vulnerability. And over the years, protests, activism by advocacy groups, NGOs, and migrant workers themselves have demanded the improvement of, of, this, um, of workers' labor and human rights in China, uh, sorry, in Canada. And this accumulated activist efforts contribute to the recent adjustment of LCP program by the government in 2014, which eliminates the living requirement for migrant domestic workers. But this prerequisite for 24 months care work for immigration eligibility remains. Mm -hmm. So my interviews with Filipino domestic workers want to show how their life and work situations have, have, have been changed since this newly um, implementation of the adjusted policy. And it shows that their situations have not really improved that much. And most of the structural and institutional forces, despite this um, policy adjustment, remain intact. Lack of the employment opportunities and low paid jobs in the Philippines um, are still the main reasons that drive Filipino women to emigrate to search for better lives, which is as the result of this global uh, unevenness of development. And the global care chain as a product of neoliberal reform, capitalist globalization, national labor exporting policies, and international sexual division of labor still preserves, preserves Filipino migrant women as this ideal labor force in advanced economic areas and countries. As we can mm -hmm. see, they are also men labor force in areas like Hong Kong, countries like Singapore, and uh, areas of Middle East, etc. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these women are coming from the Philippines with maybe long hours, low pay, and hoping for a better life here. Based on your conversations with these women, are they making more? Are they working less? Are, are their conditions getting better? Is, is the grass greener on the other side? Yes, um, that, that's a great question. So 
Um, the workers I interviewed uh, in this study, they make between around 1,000 to 2,000 each month in Canadian dollars. And taking into consideration their working hours each day from early morning as early as 6 a.m. to evening around 7 p.m., this very hourly rate for their salary is significantly lower than the minimum wage in British Columbia. And different from the um, previous generations in the 90s, when most of the employer families were mainly white middle class, the more affluent non-white families have begun to employ migrant domestic workers. And this very changing trend corresponds to the rising numbers of middle-class immigrants as a result of Canada's selective immigration policy under this category of so-called skilled workers to attract global professional elites. And most of my interviewees work for non-white middle-class families, including Vietnamese, Chinese, Indian, Filipino. Whereas, so in this article, I, I want to also emphasize that whereas this demographic shift does not indicate any departure from the existing racial politics and dynamics, the class dynamics become more salient in the present relations between migrant and domestic workers and their employer families. When I first read this paper, this was actually the point that I thought was most fascinating about this work, because it isn't what my assumption would have been. And I think that that, that, um, that pattern around place, class and exploitation is maybe even worth more consideration than, than, you know, obviously this is a starting point, but probably something to continue on with. Now, Leela's story, or I'm sorry, is it Lila or Leela? Leela. Leela's story Lila. was particularly compelling to me. Can you tell us about her? Sure. Um, so... To clarify, it's a pseudonym to um, yes. protect the privacy of the interviewees. So I got to know Lila through a local NGO for domestic workers' rights. Um, the story from her demonstrates that I want to use her story to demonstrate that it's still very difficult for migrant domestic workers to navigate this very segregated labor market, even with citizenship status. So in the early 90s, as early 90s, 90s, Lila was recruited by an employment agency in the Philippines and started to work as a domestic worker for, for a Canadian family. She became a permanent resident in the late 90s after almost a decade of work and was then able to bring her son to Canada. And she obtained her Canadian citizenship in the early 2000s. Since then, she had been working at several local convenience stores for more than a decade um, till we met. And this very long working hours, low salary, and lack of benefits made the job hardly bearable. Uh, but she had very few choices, just as many other uh, migrant domestic workers face. Although uh, Lila had a degree and experience in healthcare back in the Philippines, it's almost impossible to secure a job as she uh, aspired in, in public hospitals due to the lack of accreditation and recognition of this degrees and skills in the Canadian labor market. And in the past two decades, private home care services have flourished in metropolitan Canadian cities like Vancouver, Toronto, etc., which demand a large number of labor force. Mm -hmm. But the lack of enforcement of national standards and principles leaves this private home care agencies largely unregulated. So with formal experience and qualification as a care worker, Lila was able to land a job at such an agency in Vancouver. 
and an hourly rate of uh, 18 Canadian dollars, only slightly above the minimum wage in British Columbia. Mm -hmm. And each week, she and her co-workers usually work, work between 50 to 60 hours, but they receive no or little overtime pay. And the agency also has very strict no disclose, no asking rules that forbid care workers to ask clients how much they pay the agency for service. Mm -hmm. so more often, workers must do overnight caregiving and are paid with a package of 150 for 12 hours work. So as, as this employment at private home care agencies is primarily on contracts, job security and benefits of the formal employment are still very, uh, very much inaccessible to workers like Leela. And it's also a very common uh, phenomenon among the Filipino domestic workers in Canada now. You have this quote by Leela in your paper, and she says, Justin Trudeau once advocated that care workers should get paid at least $23 an hour, but we still get paid less than that. So you can, you can see that this isn't something that they're happy with. This is something that is on their minds and they're thinking about it. Exactly. When we think about these other platform gig economy uh, companies, Uber, Lyft, Skip the Dishes, any of those kind of um, domestic service platforms, how does this sort of help or continue to exploit these kinds of workers? What did your findings say about this sort of vicious cycle of low income service work in Canada? And are these services assisting them or not assisting them? How's that playing out? That's a great question. So a recent research report on the platform economy in Canada reviews that uh, last year actually published the size of gig economy that relies on on-demand labor platforms uh, such as Uber, Lyft, uh, as you've said, Instant Cart, those delivery platforms has grown substantially in the past decade. And most gig platform workers um, are drivers or food delivery workers for platforms. And major, major global domestic service platforms such as Care.com and Handy, they have also launched their services in many Canadian cities in the past few years. So although it's it's a bit beyond the scope of this particular article uh, mm -hmm. to, to examine to what extent these platforms have shaped the labor market of the care industry in Canada, um, I want to shed light on the perceptions of domestic workers about these platforms uh, to talk about some relationship between workers and the, the domestic service platforms. Were, were your respondents familiar with any of these services? That's a good question. I, I was just about to elaborate on that. So the migrant Filipino migrant women that I interviewed, they have actually not encountered this domestic service platforms. They've never used of those platforms, but um, they are very familiar with other platforms as, as customers like Uber um, and, and Lyft. So um, when I introduced these platforms about uh, like TaskRabbit, Handy and Care.com, matching workers with clients in need of care service, cleaning and furniture, et cetera, many of the workers actually showed strong interest and express that they may turn to these platforms as supplementary income resources in the future. Um, they, they actually, with all of them, have shown very strong aspirations for formal employment in the area of their passion, for instance, housework, social work, et cetera. 
However, they were very much struggling. They're very much struggling with the rather, rather limited access to secure those jobs in those areas. So um, that's why a lot of them will end up continuing at working as domestic work workers or working other low-income service areas. That's why I'm arguing the article, article that stuck in this vicious circle for Filipino migrant women, care service platforms steps in and becomes one of the means among their limited choice to search for job opportunities and earn income. Mm -hmm. By the same time, at the same time, as you said, these workers have, they have a lot of agency in realizing the, the various situations, right? Uh, they are very quite aware of the precarity they face with the platforms. As one of the workers said that uh, she's very interested, she's much more interested in getting full-time jobs with a stable income in the area of her passion. And she's not really sure if those platforms, those service platforms can provide such opportunities, which I find very um, fascinating, although it's still at a speculative stage to see mm -hmm how it actually shapes those, those working conditions. It will re rely on future research. But this thoughts of workers and their awareness of the all kinds of um, precarity and, and potential exploitation, exploitative relationship with the platforms is really fascinating. It's, it's especially fascinating the, the level of awareness that contingency is impacting their daily lives. And so we, we see this vicious circle that you're highlighting, and I suspect they are experiencing it as well. Are there any other findings that come from this work or where can we go from here? Sure. Um, so I, ha I had some suggestions towards the end of the article um, in conversation with the existing studies on platform economy and the proposed solutions regarding the uh, government work regulation or transnational governance, et cetera. So many scholars and activists and protesters uh, in the past decade worldwide had called for government regulation over digital labor platforms to enforce formal employment to protect workers' rights in the platform gig economy. And granting formal employment is certainly undoubtedly an indispensable way to improve platform workers' well-being. But I argue that such a solution is also, it's often very much constrained by national boundaries and premised on the requirement of citizenship status. For, yes. for instance, for online workers located in developing countries and working on digital platforms located in developed countries, protection of their labor rights requires transnational governance, which is not yet implemented. And for transnational migrant workers in, in, in my study, the lack of immigration status limits their access to entitled labor rights of formal employment. And even with the citizenship status, as we can see through so Lila's story and many other workers' story, it's very hard for them to achieve social mobility. So the, I argue that policy adjustments and government regulation at the national international levels are certainly crucial steps but addressing the labor issues and improve um, the well-being of workers require wider and more radical social change. Um, digital platforms rely on, as I've argued in the article, rely on this long-standing historical, structural, and institutional factors, which produces a cheap produce them as cheap labor force. Demanding regulations over platforms could be short-term goal, 
but it's insufficient to address workers' inequalities. So I contend that there awaits this mobilization and formation of broader labor movements at local, national, or even transnational levels with more transformative and inclusive agendas, which seek not only to confront platforms exploitation and precarity, but also to undermine this intertwined structural and power dominations. It's just so fascinating. And I think the, the thing that I appreciate most about this piece that you've been working on is how many questions it raises. And when an article raises that many questions, it means it's a really good launch point for so many more studies to come that can actually enact that change and look at the sort of enabling and constraining factors that these workers and certainly the, the conditions that are you know, technologically mediated are producing and enhancing. Is there anything else that people should know or any other last remarks you want to leave with people? Thank you. Uh, so yes, I'd like to share a bit about my uh, maybe future steps on this particular topic. So um, I want to continue with this um, project, a series of projects focusing on studying more uh, care service platforms in Canada and in elsewhere, and look closely at their labor force and also to understand how those platforms are shaping and are shaped by the care work industry uh, in, in the larger commodification process of domestic work in, in Canada and beyond. Well, thank you so much. I think that I am definitely looking forward to reading this. I suspect it will come out at some point in the future and we, it's something we can all look forward to. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, just a note to the listener, there are more IAMCR and Friends podcasts available on Apple and Spotify. Thanks for listening.